Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, Joshua chapter 9. The law of Moses is of itself a theory and is an expansive statement of God's divine ideals. You know, the real rub for the faithful is in finding ways to put it into practice in our lives. As we operate in our diverse cultures and using the principles of the law as that motor to drive our lifestyles. Now that may sound like a prescription and a challenge for the modern day Jew or Christian or more pointedly, pointedly the modern believer who has decided to accept and explore the Hebrew roots of our faith. And while what I just told you is true for us, it in fact is also the backdrop for the book of Joshua in general and it's particularly for the subject of today's lesson, Joshua chapter 9. Now, Joshua chapter 9 is going to focus on an encounter that the Israelites had with a nation of people called the Gibeonites. And this encounter would form an uneasy relationship between these two groups, one that would endure for centuries. And, and this because it was founded on deception on the part of one party and sin on the part of the other. Now, this account in Joshua, according to a Hebrew scholar named O.V. Gerlach, this account, he says, is a warning to the church of all ages against the cunning and, as he says, the dissimulation of the world, which often seeks for a peaceable recognition on the part of the kingdom of God and even for reception into it but only when it's at its advantage to do so. Now I would take that statement of his one step further and say that it's a warning not only to the church but also to the Jewish people of the 21st century. Especially since the Lord has mercifully returned them from exile place them back into their own land. And in light of what's happening today in the modern state of Israel, the book of Joshua is most contemporary and enlightening and its cautions and its predicted consequences ought to be heeded. So let's read Joshua chapter 9 together. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 250. When all the kings on the west side of the Yarden, the Jordan, in the hills, in the Shephelah, and all along the shore of the great sea that fronts the Lebanon, the Hitti, the Imori, the Kinani, the Prezi, Hevi, and Yavusi heard what happened, they joined forces to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Giva heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they developed a clever deception. By the way, Givaz Gibeon. And they made themselves look as if they had been on a long journey. 
by putting on old sacks on their donkeys and taking used wineskins that had burst and been mended back together. They put old patched sandals on their feet and dressed in worn out clothes and took as provisions nothing but dried up bread that was crumbling to pieces. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a country far away. Now make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hebe, How do we know that you don't live here among us? If you do, we don't want to make a covenant with you. But they answered Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua asked, Who are you? Where did you come from? And they answered him, Your servants have come from a very distant country. Because of the reputation of Adonai your God. We have heard reports about him. Everything he did in Egypt. Everything he did to the two kings of the Amorite across the Jordan. Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan at Ashtarot. So our leaders and all the people living in our country said to us, Take provisions with you for the journey. Go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now make a covenant with us. Here is the bread which we took for our provisions. It was still warm when we took it out of our homes the day we left to come to you. Now look at it. It's, it's dried and turned to crumbs. And, and look at these wineskins. Well, they were new when we filled them, but look, now they're torn. Likewise, these clothes of ours and our shoes are worn out because of our very long journey. And the men sampled some of their food, but they didn't seek the advice of Adonai. So Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to spare their lives, and the leading officials of the community swore to them. But three days later, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived there with them. The people of Israel traveled, arrived at the city, their cities on the third day. Their cities were Givon, Kifrah, Beirut, and Kirat Yarim. The people of Israel did not attack them because the leading officials of the, uh, of the community had sworn to them by Adonai, the God of Israel. But all the community grumbled against the leaders. However, the leaders replied to the whole community, but we have sworn to them by Adonai, the God of Israel, so we can't touch them. Here's what we will do to them. We'll let them live so that God's anger will not be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. Yes, let them live, the leaders continued, but let them chop wood, draw water for the whole community. This is what the leader said. Now Joshua summoned them and said this to them. Why have you deceived us by saying we came from a place very far away when in fact you are living right here with us? Now you have a curse on you. You'll be slaves forever, supplying people to chop wood and draw water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, well, it's because we heard the reports that Adonai, your God, had ordered his servant Moses to give you all the land to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from ahead of you. So we were terrified for our lives on account of you. That's why we did this. Now, as you see, we're in your hands. So do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua did exactly that. He saved them from the power of the people of Israel so that they didn't kill them. But he did that same day make them choppers of wood and drawers of water for the community and for the altar of Adonai in the place where he would choose. And they remain so to this day. Well, a new paradigm is in operation. Whereas God told Israel that their enemies would flee before their onslaught. 
and that the hearts of the many Canaanite kings and their people would melt in the fear of Israel. Here we find several Canaanite city-states banning together to fight against Israel. Six separate and independent groups of people got together and formed a formidable military alliance. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, no doubt it was the result of Israel's defeat at Ai before the, they later regrouped and conquered Ai that this group of six determined that if they fought against Israel as a single army, maybe victory was indeed possible. Now, what a great lesson this is for us. Recall that the defeat at Ai was a result of Achan's violation of the law of Harem, the law of the ban that the Lord God had placed on Jericho. And as a result of Achan's sin, Israel bore the burden of the consequence of misappropriating God's holy property and thus, coupled with a pretty healthy dose of arrogance and self-confidence, they did not seek the Lord's guidance and so they lost that first battle at Ai. Now, this was the first time since crossing the Jordan River that Israel had known defeat. Okay. The, the leaders of Israel confessed their complicity before God. They repented. They identified the culprit, Achan, who stole the Lord's banned property, punished him for the Lord's instructions, and as a result, God, God's people received restoration in their relationship with Yehovah. It would seem that what began as a terrible misadventure was actually heading towards a happy ending. Especially when the father instructed Joshua to again attack I, and that this time he told them they'd win handily. But chapter 9 paints a little different picture. Even though the God of Israel had forgiven his people and restored their relationship with them, that doesn't mean that the consequences for their actions had ended. Israel had unwittingly set into motion a whole series of events that would trouble them as a nation throughout their history. Okay. Often the errors of our past, before we submitted to the will of God or prior to our being reinstated into his good graces, seemed to pop up and haunt us when we least expect it. Sometimes these things will actually follow us to our graves. Okay? And, and we're relieved of them only when we leave these bodies and join our Savior in heaven. There, there was no erasing the reality of Israel's initial defeated eye. And there is therefore no stopping the surrounding tribes and people from hearing about it. And it was inevitable that the knowledge of that defeat would cause some of those nations who would probably otherwise have just surrendered to Israel or been destroyed to gain courage and assume that Israel was vulnerable and maybe they could be driven back. It made them assume that the Lord God who led Israel was perhaps not as invincible and powerful as they had feared. Redemption which Christians more commonly call salvation, does not mean that our immediate circumstances necessarily change. 
Okay. Being saved indeed gives us a new spiritual and eternal life with God. But it isn't a universal divine mulligan. Okay. Which pardons us from the earthly ramifications that result from our earlier rash and rebellious actions. This is a lesson that Israel would painfully relearn over and over again. On the other hand, not all the nations in the promised land felt this same confidence as the six-nation northern alliance of tribes that formed an army to come against Joshua's invading forces. The leaders of Gideon remained fearful of Israel, and so they decided to try and avert the inevitable. Let me make a point I haven't made in a while. We're going to start encountering many of the primary tribes and nations that lived in the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan was a name for a region. The land of Canaan wasn't a sovereign nation. Saying the land of Canaan is not unlike saying the Middle East. We're saying Europe. Okay. There is no nation of Europe, nor is there a single people group there or race or tribe or nationality of Europe. When we speak of a European, we just mean somebody who lives in that general region. Right? But Europeans identify themselves according to their specific nationality. French, British, Irish, German, Polish, so on. Therefore, in our list of the six Nations and city-states that decided to band together and gang up on Israel, we see one of them identified as Canaanites. So, the Bible will loosely refer to any and all residents living in the general region of the land of Canaan as Canaanites, but that's not how they spoke of themselves. Those who identified themselves as Canaanites were from the tribe of Canaan. Canaan was the grandson of Noah, who was cursed for the actions of Canaan's father, Ham, who walked into Noah's tent seeing him naked and drunk and then reporting it to his brothers. And while the land of Canaan was named for his tribe, they only held some of the villages and cities. Scores of other tribes and peoples populated the land of Canaan. The Hittites were an enormous and advanced society that centered in what is modern-day Turkey. They also established cities in the region of the land of Canaan. But the Hittites were not descended from Canaan. They were from Yatheth. Amorites we've, of course, heard about before, and they were perpetual enemies of the Hebrews. They were originally from Mesopotamia. And very likely Abraham was one of them. The Jebusites were the original founders of the city of Jerusalem. Long before it was called Jerusalem. The Perizzites are thought not to be the name of a tribe or even a city-state, but rather a kind of nickname for various peoples who lived in the northern hill country of Canaan. The identity of the Hivites is a little more difficult. No, there, there, there is no extra-biblical mention 
of a group of people called the Hivites. We only find it in the Bible. Okay. They apparently were headquartered near Shechem. And their influence was probably pretty much limited to Shechem and the surrounding area. If you recall, the king of Shechem's the king of Shechem was that fellow that Jacob's sons killed all right, after the rape of their sister Dinah. He was called a Hivite. So it may even have been more of a description than a formal name of a people group. Now, it's more than coincidence that in Joshua 9, we hear about this particular military alliance of these six nations. Because God, through Moses many years earlier identified these exact nations by name in the book of Exodus that Israel must drive out of the land or kill them all without mercy. Listen to Exodus 34.11. Observe what I am ordering you to do today. Here, I am driving out ahead of you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Be careful not to make a covenant with the people living in the land where you're going so that they won't become a snare within your borders. Rather, you're to demolish their altars, smash their standing stones, cut down their sacred poles because you're not to bow down to any other god since Adonai, whose very name is jealous, is a jealous god. Do not make a covenant with the people living in the land. It will cause you to go astray after their gods and sacrifice to their gods. Then they'll invite you to join them eating their sacrifices. And then you'll take daughters as wives for your sons. Their daughters will prostitute themselves to their own gods and make your sons do the same thing. Sometimes we think, and frankly are taught, that ancient cultures were ignorant, unsophisticated, isolated, short on communication. Nothing could be further from the truth. These ancient peoples knew what was going on around them. News spread very quickly. Nations had spy networks. And they had, some of them that were larger, had far-flung military outposts to keep an eye on their neighbors. Trade caravans were the equivalent of the post office and the Pony Express back then. Those six nations banded together Because they had been targeted for elimination. And it was common knowledge. For them, because of God's decree to Moses, surrender wasn't even a choice. Either they left the region, hundreds of thousands of them, or they fought. That was their only two options. Now with that, let's go back to verse 3, where it states that the people of Gibeon heard what happened to the residents of Ai and Jericho and decided they needed to make a treaty with Israel. Now, Gibeon was actually a small confederacy of cities and some villages who wanted no part of war with Joshua's army. So they came up with a clever plan. They would deceive Joshua and the leaders of Israel into thinking they had come from far away to make peace. Why did it matter? whether they came from nearby or from a long distance. Because the Gibeonites also apparently knew that Israel's charter from their God was that they were to destroy all the cities and the people who lived in the land of Canaan. And that Jehovah prohibited Israel from making treaties with any residents 
of Canaan. Gibeon was located in the land of Canaan. They were very close, in fact, about 20 miles away from where uh, Israel was camped. They basically had the same options before them as that six-nation northern alliance. Fight or move away. But the leaders of Gibeon came up with an alternative solution. Let's trick Israel into believing we're from a region outside of the land of Canaan, make a treaty with them, and presto! It's too late for Israel to back out, and Gibeon would now be in the clear. So to make the ruse work, the ambassadors from Gibeon equipped themselves with clothing and food and supplies that looked old and decrepit. And they journeyed south a couple of days until they met up with Israel's army and they were taken to Joshua. And we can easily imagine these suspicious Israelite leaders as they began questioning these strange foreigners and then the deception was sprung. The men of Gideon explained that they had come from a long way off, a lie, and said they wanted to make a covenant, the truth. A better word for a covenant in this context is peace treaty. They wanted to be under Israel's military protection as opposed to being an enemy. Now, they begin their plea with the words, we are your servants. This was just flattery. It was Middle Eastern courtesy. When a weaker force asks something of a stronger force, the protocol was for the weaker force to be greatly humble towards that stronger force. By no means were they communicating, we'll submit to you and then be your slaves. Then the Gideonite representatives continued their cunning strategy by heaping more flattery on Israel. They explained that they had heard all about what had happened to those people over on the east side of the Jordan River. Sichon of Heshbon, Og of Bashan. They heard about the powerful God, Yehoveh, who dealt with the Egyptians on Israel's behalf. Interestingly and quite wisely, they say nothing about Jericho and Ai. Because these battles happened nearby in the land of Canaan. And the Gibeonites are feigning as having come from a long way away, north or east. Better to pretend that they hadn't heard anything about Ai and Jericho, which were actually just a few miles from their territory. The Gibeonites probably even had observers on the scene as Israel destroyed Jericho and then Ai. Bottom line. We want to be your friends. And besides, we're outside of any instruction your God may have given you concerning the land you're in the process of conquering. The Gibeonites were very anxious to show Israel's leaders what were essentially stage props that they had prepared for the deception. Spoiled food, burst wineskins, tattered clothing. Well, verse 14 explains that some of the men of Israel then sampled the alleged spoiled food of the Gibeonites, and apparently it convinced them that these travelers were telling the truth. But, says the second half of the verse, the leaders of Israel did not seek the advice of Jehovah before deciding how to respond to this Gideonite request for a treaty. Sound familiar? Yeah, they had just made that same mistake. 
at Ai. Israel attacked without first consulting the Lord and it was terribly costly and they were about to do it again. Now, how exactly would the leaders of Israel go about consulting Almighty God on this matter had they chosen to? I mean, Joshua was not a mediator, so he could not enter into the tent of meeting and directly confront God as Moses did for all those years. Rather, this statement about seeking God is making an indirect reference to the method Israel would have used for centuries to come when they wanted to seek the advice or counsel of the Lord. The Urim and Tumim. The Urim and Tumim were those two stones that the high priest of Israel carry in a special pouch attached to his ephod. And the leaders of Israel would bring a matter of importance that needed a, a decision from Jehovah, and they'd bring that to the high priest. And the high priest would use the Urim and Tumim to discern God's answer. Now, no one knows exactly how those stones were used in order to indicate God's answer, but the ancient Hebrew sages say it was common knowledge that the only type of result that these stones could give were yes or no. Uh, or in another sense, they could choose one choice between two options. Lots were another way that Jehovah was consulted and decisions of the Lord were handed down to Israel, but the lots did not have to be drawn by the high priest. Okay. Any authorized leader could use lots. A distinction between lots and the Urim and Tumim is that lots allowed for multiple options. Lots provided more than a simple either or yes or no type of an answer. Well, apparently Joshua and the leaders of Israel used their own wisdom and they decided to make the treaty. Now, such a treaty, of course, spared the lives of the people of Gideon. Now, a treaty or a covenant was established by making a vow. And a vow, by definition, was the invoking of the name of that tribe or nation's God as a witness and the overseer of that covenant. Okay. Now, this type of treaty was what is often called a suzerain, suzerain treaty. It's an agreement between two men or nations at peace. All right. However, it's also generally set up, generally sets up one party as the superior and the other as the subservient. It was generally an agreement among unequals. A common name in more modern times is a vassal treaty. One party was the king, the other was the vassal. In other words, it's not like in modern times with, say, NATO, or like the alliance we had in World War II, where all signatories were considered to be equal and cooperative. The alliance that we read of earlier in Joshua 9, of the six northern nations was an alliance of equals. What this means is that the Gibeonites agreed to be under the protection of Israel and that Israel's rule extended over them. Okay. However, it didn't mean that Israel would absorb Gibeon or that the people of Gibeon were to be like slaves taken the spoils of war. The ambassadors of Gibeon accomplished their mission. And they went home with exactly what they had come for. 
a guarantee of the continuation of their people. But it didn't take long for Israel to find out they'd been duped. Three days after making the treaty with Gibeon, Joshua discovered that Gibeon was only about 20 miles from Israel's encampment in Gilgal. So he sent a contingent of tribal leaders up to Gibeon to see for themselves just what the extent of their foolish arrangement was going to bring. Well, when they arrived, they of course discover that the Gibeonites were located in the land of Canaan, a fact which the Gibeonites had totally misrepresented to Israel, but also that they were a lot more than just a small isolated group of people. Rather, the Gibeonites controlled several substantial satellite cities and were given the names of three of them. Sephirah, Beirut, and Kiryat Yerim. All right? And this in addition, is in addition, of course, to their capital city of Kiva or Gibeon. Now, every one of the cities resided in the territory allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. And likely there were several outlying villages and towns that were associated with this Gideonite confederation. Well, Israel now has a severe dilemma on their hands. And verse 18 tells us their decision. Israel decides not to attack Gibeon as the Lord had expressly directed them to do back in the days of Moses. And why did they choose this? Because the leaders of Israel had made a vow to be peaceful with Gibeon and a vow cannot be broken because it automatically invokes the name of their God Jehovah and here we have the classic result of what happens when we ignore God's commands and eschew seeking him out for direction at this point Israel was damned if they do and damned if they don't if they did attack Gibeon They'd be breaking the vow they'd just made based on God's holy name. If they didn't attack Gibeon, then they were breaking a direct and known uh, command. They were committing a known sin of disobedience by refusing to destroy that which God said must be destroyed. So they waited out. Which of the two was the least evil? and decided keeping their vow to God was more important. Now, we've talked about vow-making in earlier lessons on Torah, so if you want more in-depth understanding of the protocols and the impact of vow-making, go back and review it. But in a nutshell, vows were a very usual and customary part of Middle Eastern life in the Bible era. It was by no means a Hebrew invention. Okay? It was also the norm that whatever God the participants pledged allegiance to, his name was invoked as a witness to it, as a party to it, and as a guarantor of this contract or covenant. So making a vow is a very serious business. Since most vows were public and usually were written down, and just as often had to do with very real and tangible political or financial or civil matters as, as opposed to making of some kind of private vow of faith between you and the Lord. Okay. There were also real and tangible penalties for breaking a vow. It could mean losing your property, starting a war. It could mean being jailed. It could mean being executed. 
This was all in addition to the vow breaker being subjected to more supernatural punishments inflicted by his now angry God, whom he has insulted and offended by not following through with the terms of the agreement to which the God's name was attached. The Hebrews and the pagan nations that surrounded them all pretty much believed the same way on the issue of vows. Now, vows were so serious that even a vow made based on deception by one party or both remained as binding. Okay? That's the case here. Because one might think, as we read this story, why didn't Joshua just annul the treaty? Right? Since the entire basis for it was a lie perpetrated by the ambassadors of Gibeon. Yet the ancient, to the ancient mind, that simply was not a good enough reason to overturn the vow. In fact, especially to the oriental mind, putting one over on a friend or enemy elevated the status of the one who came out on top. Lying and cheating, if done cleverly, and affording the, the liar an advantage was seen as something to brag about. All right? It was a badge of honor. Yeah. It was just another way of outsmarting your opponent. In Western culture, that doesn't play well in our society. But truth be known, we're kind of the exception to the rule in the world. Most societies in the world have much different rules and views concerning making agreements and what constitutes fair play than we're familiar with. Now, we're going to see several occasions of vow-making in the Bible that on the surface seemed so good, but had disastrous results. One of the most infamous concerns Jephthah, a story that appears in the book of Judges. We'll read all about it and dissect it when we get there. Jephthah was an Israelite general who was going to lead Israel into battle. And he made a vow that if God would give him victory, he would sacrifice the first thing that ran out of his door when he got home to greet him. Now, thinking for sure this thing would be an animal like a sheep, it never occurred to him that it would be his daughter that would run out that door and thus be the object of a sacrifice. Even though he was devastated due to the mindset of the Middle Easterner of that era, Jephthah concluded he could not break that vow, even though it meant killing his own daughter and then burning her body on an altar. By the way, do not take Israel's decision to spare Gibeon or Jephthah's decision to kill and sacrifice his daughter as the correct decision. It wasn't. This is, this, this is not a directive from God to do something evil and wrong just because you made a rash vow to him. Okay. The point of it is that, A, as we're told, it's better not to make vows at all. B, our long ago and forgotten sins can suddenly pop, pop up to bite us with tragic results. And C, by disobeying the Lord, we set off on a path that can only lead to more sin and disobedience and circumstances that we could never in our wildest dreams have imagined. So in Joshua 9.20, the leaders of Israel agree that they're going to let Gibeon live 
But they're going also going to make Gibeon their servants and give them menial tasks. Now, before we continue and finish up Joshua 9, I'm going to editorialize for a few minutes because I'm convinced of the, con- of the critical nature of what I'm about to tell you. Because of the mindset that Israel adopted over 3,000 years ago and well illustrated in the story of Gibeon, we find the consequences playing out over and over again in Israel's history. In modern Israel, they would do very well to take the message of Joshua to heart and change their course. Our American government would also do well to read Joshua and see that our incessant threatening, bullying, and pushing Israel to do something they should not do is to join our fate with theirs. This so-called roadmap to peace is exactly as it was between Gibeon and Israel. It may well be a roadmap to peace between Israel and her neighbors, at least for a brief time, but it's also a roadmap to war between God and Israel. Israel is not to give God's enemies a foothold in the promised land. Israel is to drive out those who do not join Israel, who do not give up allegiance to false gods, who do not become a friend of Jehovah. If those enemies will not leave Israel, and they will not join Israel, if they insist on remaining loyal to Allah and to foreign governments, and they decide to resist being driven out by fighting Israel to the death, then so be it. They're to be destroyed. That is the direct command of God is given to Moses and Moses made Joshua swear to carry it out. That directive has never been abolished. Now obviously when Israel's disobedience and rebelliousness led to their exiles and they didn't inhabit or govern the holy lands during those times then such a directive was in a, for lack of better words, a state of suspended animation. But Israel is back as a sovereign nation in the God-given place it inhabited 3,000 years ago and that divine directive is once again active as a result. That the world doesn't recognize this is completely understandable. They know nothing of the God of Israel or the word of the Lord. But too much of the church doesn't recognize this either. Usually because it says, well, Jesus abolished every directive and command of God that came before his advent. Therefore, God's mandate to rid the holy lands of false gods and their places of worship and of the people who would rather die than either leave the area or abandon their abominable worship practices is also abolished. And everybody should be allowed their piece of the pie in the place called Israel. After all, that's the peaceful and merciful thing to do. That's what Jesus would want. Well, by abandoning some of the word of God and picking and choosing the parts we prefer, we've managed to fashion ourselves a pretty good prison of confusion in all this. We find ourselves in predicaments that seem to have no good answer. Just like what happened with Joshua and Gibeon. Because either way we turn now, we find ourselves confronting God. The Jewish people of modern Israel have done the same thing, are now 
are in an impossible position. That the best and brightest minds in the entire world cannot figure out how to untangle. Okay? Backtracking is possible only to a degree. And it would be a very painful and costly experience. Gibeon came to Israel on false pretenses. Just as the various factions of the Palestinians come to Israel on false pretenses. They say that with just a little more of the Holy Land placed in their hands, with just a little piece of Jerusalem given over to them, with Israel agreeing to take back just a few thousand Palestinian refugees who want nothing to do with the God of Israel, there'll be peace. It's a lie. And just as Joshua suspected and confirmed as concerned the confederation of Gibeon, there were ulterior motives for this false peace treaty. And even more appalling is that once Joshua found out that little of anything that the ambassadors of Gibeon said was true, he went ahead with it anyway. And we see Israel doing it precisely that same thing as we live and walk today. The government and the people of Israel know full well that the Palestinian leadership doesn't want real peace. They want Israel. Okay? And yet they seek more agreements and more promises that go directly against God's commands and intents. And in further parallel with modern Israel, we see that Joshua and the leaders of Israel say that it would be wrong, it would be evil to break that vow and that stupid agreement they made with Gibeon, even though it was based entirely on lies and deceit. And here we have today the government of Israel going ahead with making agreements to give away sovereignty over portions of the Holy Land to their enemy, knowing from experience that the enemy has no intent of honoring any agreement and that whatever weak promises the Palestinian leadership makes are simply based on more lies and deceptions. And they do this crazy thing in the name of the God of Israel. And they say that the long-held Jewish values of mercy and kindness and humanitarianism compel them to seek peace with God's enemies. And upon Israel's back, like a jockey whipping a thoroughbred as he races towards the finish line, sits the United States government, trying to make it all happen as fast as possible. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in the faith, we are living today as if in a time warp. We are back in the days of Joshua. And the primary participants are utterly blind to it. Israel may be deceived, our U.S. government may be deceived, but we don't have to be deceived. Okay. Believe the Word of God. Trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God and then let the chips fall where they may. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Joshua was supposed to do. Now, in an ironic twist, verse 18 has the people grumbling and chastising, chastising their Israelite leaders for their sin as opposed to when Moses and the leaders of the Exodus chastised the people of Israel for their sin. So in verse 22 we have Joshua summoning the leaders of Gibeon to explain themselves. And sure enough they had indeed 
heard of Moses' directive to drive out or kill all the inhabitants of Canaan, and they believed it. So they wanted to see what could be done to find a compromise. Well, instead of killing the Gibeonites, Joshua made them, it says, choppers of wood and drawers of water. Joshua did something that the Gibeonites really didn't expect. He enslaved them to a degree. But later on, we're going to find in the Old Testament that the Hebrews weren't cruel to Gibeon and that Gibeon and Israel got along pretty well. Chopping wood and drawing water were the lowliest of duties, which is why they were assigned them. Obviously, that was not the only two tasks given to the Gibeonites. Rather, it was just a way to show that both males and females were under Israel's thumb. Chopping wood was a traditional man's duty of a slave. Drawing water was a traditional woman's duty of a slave. But just to demonstrate how sloppy Joshua and the leaders of Israel were in following God's Torah, following his law, we find in verse 27 that some of the Gibeonites were used to chop wood and draw water for use at the altar of Adonai. In other words, here we have foreigners who worship other gods being assigned to supply wood for the holy fire on Israel's sacrificial altar and to bring water for the many God-ordained temple rituals that involved hand-washing and bathing and even cleaning up the blood. This was supposed to be the sole duty of the Levites. So as you can imagine, what we have here is that some of these Gibeonite slaves were turned over to the Levites, and the Levites having the Gibeonite had the Gibeonite slaves do what God said only Levites were authorized to do. All of the menial tasks associated with service, sanctuary service to God. Now, in some ways, Joshua chapter 9 contrasts with the story of Rehob, that prostitute innkeeper of Jericho. Because she too sought to save her and her family's lives. But she did so by being truthful with Israel. But actually, she deceived her own people. She forsakes her gods for the God of Israel. She proved her loyalty and faithfulness by helping Israel. Then she lived outside the camp of Israel, but near them. And then finally, inside the camp as a member of Israel. The representatives of Gibeon, on the other hand, sought indeed to save their and their families' lives, but they did it by being dishonest with Israel, but being truthful to their own people. They kept their gods, but they showed just enough respect for the God of Israel to be allowed to live nearby. They didn't prove their loyalty to Israel in order to establish a relationship. They simply used lies to trap Israel into a treaty that played on Israel's out-of-balance view on the value of a vow in comparison with the more basic value of following God's commands to begin with. We'll start Joshua 10 next week that continues on this same theme.